Hi, I'm Isra Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hunt. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in DC and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win and the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We're going to be joined by Chris Cotillo of MassLive.com in just a little bit. Get into the Red Sox as we get closer to the start of the season. He had a great article on Tristan Cassis earlier this week, so I want to get into that with Chris as well. But where we start is with the Celtics, because the first for the first time in like forever, they're not in first place in the Eastern Conference after falling to the New York Knicks last night in just a really ugly game all in all for the Celtics. And it's... Starting to become a trend here where Jason Tatum is starting to struggle here. This is now three consecutive games where Tatum has not shot the ball particularly well. If you look at the three games post-All-Star break, 21 points per game. And prior to the All-Star break, he was at 30.6, which was six in the NBA. He's shooting 36.7% from the field, 22 of 60. Prior to the All-Star break, 46.4%. So obviously a huge dip there. And then the three-point percentage has just fallen off a cliff. Seven of his last 29, which is 24.1%, compared to 35.7% prior to the break. And if you look at it, the on-off stuff, or I should say the plus-minus just in general, he's a minus 32 since the start or since the All-Star break ended. That's 360th in the NBA. Pre-All-Star break, he was plus 399, which was fourth in the NBA. And another big thing to me is Tatum is not getting to the free-throw line like he was prior to the All-Star break. So pre-All-Star break, he was getting to the free throw line 8.6 times per game. That was the seventh most in the NBA. Post-All-Star break, he's at 4.7. And that's just because he took a lot against Indiana. You look at his last two games, he's taken a total of three free throws. So pre-All-Star break, he was living at the line. That's been cut in almost half, down 3.9 attempts per game. The shooting has fallen off a cliff, 46.4% down to 36.7%. And the three-point percentage went from about league average to worse than Russell Westbrook here since the All-Star break or since after the All-Star break. So how is this happening to Jason Tatum besides just missing shots? So he has been less aggressive. He's at 11.1 drives per game pre-All-Star break. That's down to 9.0 post-All-Star break. So you're looking at going down 2.1 drives per game. 
And if you look at it in that game against the Knicks, just five drives, that's six less than his pre-All-Star break average. So he just wasn't motivated to get downhill. The other big number that sticks out to you is the finishing has not been nearly as good as it had been for Tatum. So post-All-Star break, he's shooting 56.5% in the restricted area. 56.5% in the restricted area. Pre-All-Star break, he's at 70.3%. So just to put into context how bad that 56.5% is, out of the 67 players in the league that have taken at least 200 attempts in the restricted area, only four players are south of 56.5% on the season. Jalen Green, Lou Dort, Jaden Ivey, and Tari Eason. Okay, so a second-year guard in Green, who's out of control, a rookie guard in Ivey, who's just learning how to play, Lou Dort, for some reason, I guess the guy's just, I mean, sometimes it looks like he's out of control, I guess, when he drives. I don't know why Lou Dort, who's a super strong guy, why he can't finish at the basket, and a rookie forward in Eason who plays for the league's worst team in the Rockets. I guess you can debate the Rockets or the Spurs, but you get the point, right? These are all young players with the exception of Dort. Tatum has been around their level since the All-Star break. And by the way, that's 70.3% pre-All-Star break. That's elite, especially for a forward. That's center-level efficiency, right? So he's not driving the basketball as much as he was prior to the All-Star break, and he's not finishing, right? So those drives that are down are costly, and then the finishing, it's bottom of the league bag. And he's not drawing fouls, as we alluded to with the free throw shots, right? So these are things that have improved in a major way for Tatum this season. He's been great getting to the basket and finishing. He has been great getting to the free throw line, and he's been great putting the pressure on the defense by driving often. All three of those things have completely fallen off a cliff since he came back from the All-Star break. So these are things that he has to get back to the guy that he was prior to the All-Star break. And I really thought in that game against the Knicks, he was going to shoot himself out of it, right? Because he had that in and out off a screen where he has a nice finger roll, makes it 49-37. Next possession, he just goes by Grimes, hits a floater to make it 49-39. But he never really got in a shooting rhythm. That's where I thought it was going to start for Tatum, and it just never really happened for him. Now, to me, this is sort of a process thing, right? I'm sure he'll look at the finishing and not drawing the fouls and realize what he's doing. Like Tatum will look at the film and realize it. He'll probably talk to the guy that we talked to a couple of weeks ago in Drew Hanlon, right? Because he's not going through guys like he was earlier this season, right? It's more finesse like he'd been in previous years. Like for most of the season, he's been a monster and guys have been falling off him when he gets near the bucket. And the other thing that he was doing for the majority of the season He does this thing where he gets in the lane, he'll hold the ball out, and he'll get somebody to hit him on the arm. That's something we haven't seen nearly enough of since the All-Star break as well. Now, here's the good news. He's still making good plays despite the scoring not being there. And it has not halted his effort, right? Like, the lack of scoring has not affected Jason Tatum in other ways on the court. He's still playing good defense, and he's still passing the ball and setting up the offense well, right? He found smart for a wide-open three to make it 57-44 at one point. And after he missed a three, remember, he goes to the basket, gets his own rebound, and then he gets blocked, he gets that, and then he kicks it out to Al Horford, who hits a three to make it 60-51. to So that type of stuff is important for the Celtics, that, hey, even when Tatum's not shooting well, he is doing other things, right? Even the first play of the game for the Celtics, he made a great pass to Al, where he's just out on the right wing, and he whips it to Al on the left wing and hits a three. Now, after that, the Celtics like didn't hit a three for a very long time, but you get the point. He was making plays. So distributing the ball well, and making winning plays. Last night, he still finished with seven assists. And in terms of like the ejection in the game, I know people are going to point to that. 
I actually liked it. I mean, the score was 105-91. Four minutes left. The game's pretty much over. The Celtics were not winning that game. To me, it kind of showed off, showed how pissed off he was, right? Like the guy was super mad the way that he was playing. He was upset with the officiating crew, which is a whole different story. But I like the fact that he actually showed some fire there. That crew was brutal. I mean, the smart review took forever, took like, what, in real time, that took more than 10 minutes. MSG in general was a joke last night. All the beer spilling, they had to stop the game twice, one before the game even started. Like, I mean, I don't know, maybe the Celtics, like MSG, I know that's like a great, people love playing there. Kobe always liked playing there. LeBron always liked playing there. But maybe it's something about the Celtics being at the division, in the division rather that the Knicks are in. They play there so often. I just don't think, it doesn't have the same pop that when some of the other teams play there. And last night, even though the Knicks were winning the majority of the game, it just, it didn't really seem like it was an active crowd whatsoever. But anyway, you look at Tatum post-All-Star break, 10.7 rebounds per game, 7.3 assists per game. So even with the scoring numbers coming down, those are good numbers. So pre-All-Star break, 8.6 rebounds, so he's up more than two. The pre-All-Star break assists were 4.5, so he's up 2.8 per game. Massive jump there. So the rebounds tell you he's still playing hard, and the assists tell you he's still making the right plays. Now, a couple of turnovers I didn't care for last night because, remember, after he got blocked by Mitchell Robinson, the next possession, he's just like sort of falling out of bounds, turns the ball over, Mitchell Robinson takes it. But if you look at his passing, it's been good post-All-Star break. 12.3 potential assists post-All-Star break, 19 assist points created, right? So the potential assists just basically tell you where a guy has an opportunity to make a basket and... For Tatum's case, it's just not happening for him in terms of the shooters around him. Pre-All-Star break, he was at 8.4 potential assists, so he's up almost four in terms of his potential assists. So his passing has been significantly better than it was even prior to the All-Star break, despite all these numbers being down across the board. By the way, that 12.3 potential assist number, only 15 players are higher than that on the season. And of the non-guards, it's just Jokic, Draymond Green, and LeBron. So his play creating has been there post-All-Star break, despite the numbers being down across the board. And last night, potential assists 19. That's how bad the Celtics were shooting. Only Tyrese Halliburton is higher than that on the season, the 19 potential assists. All right. So now, Tatum needs to be better. No way around it. He has to get back to finishing like a monster, getting and living at the free throw line. And one attempt in terms of his free throws against the Knicks, an and one, one free throw attempt in the entire game. Actually, it wasn't an and one. Remember, it's the technical foul. One free throw attempt, not acceptable for Jason Tatum, right? Three against the 76ers, not acceptable for Jason Tatum, okay? He's too good. He's put too much work in. He needs to continue to use his physicality as a major factor, and he just hasn't post-All-Star break. And we've seen it all year long in terms of him using his physicality. That's why I have the confidence that he'll get back to the MVP caliber player that he was for most of the season. He's going to get back to that player. I truly believe that. Now, we wouldn't even be talking about this with Tatum today if his teammates actually hit some of the shots that he set up. Now, I'm not letting him off the hook. I just told you, got to get to the free throw line more. Got to get to the basketball. I'm not making excuses for the guy, but the bottom line is he needs to be better, but his teammates need to be better as well. One other Tatum note before I move on. He's averaging 37.3 minutes per game. That's second most in the league. He's fourth in total minutes, 2,165. No other player in the NBA is top five in minutes per game and total minutes. And remember, Tatum played more minutes than anyone last year if you count the regular season and the postseason by a wide margin. So this is just something to keep your eye on. Okay, I'm not going to go nuts about the minutes right now. I've done that on countless occasions. I'm just going to monitor the minutes with Tatum going forward. Here's the good news for Tatum. 
Last year, he had a bad February in terms of his efficiency. 24.5 points per game, 43.5% from the field, 32.6% from three-point territory. Then in March, Tatum had his best month of the season. He picked it up. 32.8 points per game, 53.8% from the field, and 44.7% from deep. So this could be just the dog days of the season, right? Like we talk about in Major League Baseball, where the dog days are in February in the NBA, and then he's going to get himself through this and pick it up in March. Because February has been a rough month for Tatum once again. The same thing happened last year. Monday marked the first time since November that he had back-to-back games without reaching the 20-point threshold. And this month, he's had four games where he doesn't reach 20 points. That's the most of any month this season for Jason Tatum. So just something to keep your eye on in terms of the minutes. But the good news is, if you're looking back to recent history with Tatum, he had a bad February last year and had a really good March. So maybe he has been fatigued, and it'll pick up again when we get to March here, where he looks like the Tatum we saw last year in March. Now, those numbers that he had last year, tough to imagine him doing that again. I mean, that's just a ridiculous stretch. Okay. I do think, by the way, there are some things that that Joe Mazzulla can do, like getting him the ball at the nail more. Like when he gets the ball near the free throw line, it just seems like easy things happen. That situation where he sets the screen for smart, gets the ball back on a mismatch, like that type of stuff. That's stuff that Joe Mazzulla can do to get his best player going, right? Like he's your best player. He's obviously in a funk right now from a shooting perspective. He hasn't been the same guy getting downhill Get him some easy opportunities, and I would just advise get him the ball in that free throw area, and good things will happen. We saw it last night when he got the ball there. All right, but speaking of his teammates, the Celtics, who have been a great three-point shooting team all season long, they were 9 of 42 against the Knicks from three-point territory on Monday, 21.4%. They missed two of their first 22. They missed, what, 16, 17 in a row, okay? The Celtics in February have been the best three-point shooting team in the NBA at 43%. So I understand when people in the fan base, they get aggravated that the Celtics at times just bomb threes. But last night, they weren't getting bad shots, right? I just look at it last night. If you go to the wide open threes, that means the closest defender is at least six feet away. The Celtics on wide open threes, remember, closest defender is at least six feet away. They were three of 19 on wide open threes. 15.8%. We're talking about like warm-up threes. Nobody's near you. They're three of 19. So just look at it. I mean, no team on the season is worse than 34.7%. The Celtics were at 15.8% last night. And if you look at the season, the Celtics are 41.9% on wide open threes, second in the NBA. Look at these numbers against the Knicks. White, 0 of 3. Horford, 0 of 3. Hauser, 0 of 2. Smart, 0 of 2. Blake Griffin, 0 of 2, right? So if that number is just at 7 last night, right? If they hit 7 of 19, that's what? 36.8%. That would rank 27th in the NBA. So if they just shot the ball like the 27th team in the NBA in terms of open three-pointers, the Celtics would have had what? An additional 12 points in this game if they could have just hit some of their open threes. And you had chances late, right? 93-83. Mescala misses a wide open three. And then Obi Toppin goes the other way. He makes a wide open three, so that's a six-point swing. It's 96-86 right after that, right? Hauser misses a wide open three in the corner. This is his job, hit wide open threes. He misses it, five-point swing the other way because Toppin gets a dunk on the other end. The floor spacing is bad for the Celtics. So those two threes right there are just backbreakers that either one of those gets you back in the game. So I'm not going to overreact to the three-point shooting because that's historically bad three-point shooting from the Celtics. They will shoot better. So I totally 
look at this game in terms of the shooting and say this is an outlier. Every once in a while, you're going to have a game like this. And the Celtics just had a night where everybody was shooting poorly from the field. Some interesting notes, though. So you saw Missoula go to Mescala in the third quarter to try to go with a five-out lineup to help the spacing. And it gave them an initial boost, an 8-0 run. So I like that idea. So on the season now, if you look at it, the minutes with Al and Rob, the two bigs on the floor for the Celtics, they've gone well. But the last three games with those two guys on the court together, 49 minutes, a 112.2 offensive rating, that would be 23rd in the NBA, a 124.8 defensive rating, that would be less than more than three points. And this is where the two big lineup was so successful for this team is on defense, right? The shot blocker and Rob and Al Horford taking the big man, Rob can come over as the roamer. So the numbers on the season are good. They just have not been good post-All-Star break. But if you look at it, those numbers, they're they're being outscored post-All-Star break, 12 and a half points per 100 possessions with those two guys on the floor. So if you take that in terms of the total numbers, it's 49 minutes together. The season have been outscored by 16 points post-All-Star break with Rob and Al on the court together. How about with Brogdon and Derek White in the court together? 50 minutes The Celtics have outscored teams by 30 points with those two guys in the court together. So that's a 46-point swing from the Al and Rob Williams lineup, right? And the reason I bring this up, 136.5 offensive rating, 95 defensive rating, a plus 41.5 net rating. They're outscoring teams by 41.5 points per 100 possessions with these two guys on the court post-All-Star break. The C's, by the way, if you look at it just at that lineup, that starting lineup with Al and Rob... This team has been outscored by 11 points in the first quarter post-All-Star break. Al and Rob have started in each and every one of those games. It just feels like, I just wonder, is it wise to try to match size with size, right? Because this was such a strength of the Celtics last year, having the two big lineup. Or does it make more sense to play with your playmakers, where you have Derek White and you have Malcolm Brogdon, and try to break up the big man minutes where you only have one big on the floor for the majority of the game, right? And last night... You had White in there in terms of the starting lineup because Jalen was injured, but you still had the two bigs. So last year, if you look at it, the Celtics, their strength was size. Their strength was their defense with those two big men on the floor. And I look at this team right now, and maybe I'm crazy for saying this. You may think I'm an idiot for thinking this way. I just think that the Celtics' strength this year is the amount of speed and the amount of playmakers they have, right? I would play small. If I'm Joe Mazzulla, I would lean small rather than big. Like, and I get it, it's one game, but when they play the Cavaliers on Wednesday, I'm really interested to see how do they play against a team where they have Mobley and they have Allen. What lineup works better for the Celtics when you go more with your speed and your playmakers or when you go with the two bigs? Because I can't imagine they won't start the two bigs tomorrow night. So I just feel like this is going to be an interesting decision for Joe Mazzulla. I would lean offense with this team. I would lean playmaking. I feel like I would want Brogdon and White on the court as much as I possibly could. And I would really consider going away from the two big lineup for a little bit here and see what you have. And I know that's going to be an unpopular decision, maybe in the locker room, like you got to talk to Al and Rob about this. But I really feel like they're putting themselves in a hole with this two big lineup lately. Now, I know it worked initially to begin the season. and It was great last year. Like there's a track record. I just feel like this team is better off playing fast. By the way, they really missed Jalen's shot making in that game. It was noticeable. Like when no one can hit a shot, give the ball to Jalen. He's going to get downhill. He's going to get to his pull-up game. So they certainly missed him. The other thing I mentioned is with White and Brogdon, it seems like every night one of these guys plays at an insanely high level. And Monday, that was Brogdon. He was really trying to will them to a victory against the Knicks. You look at him, 10 of 16 from the field, 22 points. 
And you look at some of those plays that he made. I mean, he had the pull-up jumper early to make it 15-13. He had the jumper that Tatum set up for him where Tatum's doubled, finds Malcolm Brogdon. I don't know why they were doubling Tatum when Brogdon's on the floor for a wide-open shot. That's just dumb. Semi-transition, he pushes the ball, finds Rob for a dunk. He got the ball where he just completely drove hard against Josh Hart. 39-27, overpowered him. He drove on Grimes for a basket, drove on quickly. I mean, his drive game was so good. He had that outstanding spin move on Randall, and then he finished with his left hand. He had a nice steal, and then he left the ball for Derek White for a wide-open three. So I thought he was tremendous on Monday, one of the real bright spots in that game. And what Brogdon does, he puts pressure on your defense. Nine drives last night. He's five of six for 10 points with an assist. He was one of the guys that was constantly pushing the basketball, getting downhill, and actually giving the Knicks trouble. And again, it's another sign to me of, from a positive perspective, what could come with this team in the postseason when you have Malcolm Brogdon, a guy other than Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum that can just get buckets. And by the way, minutes since the break, Brogdon is fifth on the Celtics, White is sixth on the Celtics, Al and Rob are third and fourth, respectively. Call me crazy, I would just lean with the Brogdon and the White lineup more often. You're going to need Al or Rob on the court, right? Like one of those guys needs to be on the court. I would just contemplate separating those guys because we've seen when those guys are separated, it works. I know there's a history that that lineup works. I would just be, if I'm Joe Mazzulla, looking to lean offense here when your team has been struggling a little bit here in terms of the spacing and whatnot, and he even acknowledged that last night in the game by going to Mascala in the third quarter for more shooting and giving himself a five-out lineup, I would really contemplate playing smaller going forward that that could be a strength of the Celtics team against some of these bigger teams. All right, a lot more to get into. Coming up next, we're going to chat some socks with Chris Cotillo of MassLive.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now from Mass Live, it is Chris Cotillo, who's just making his way back from Fort Myers. Chris, kind of jealous of you, man. I mean, it's snowing like crazy in the Northeast. Now, I shouldn't say like crazy. It's been not that much of a snowy winter, but nonetheless, it's snowing now. It's been cold. So Fort Myers, man, it must have been fun. It was. I mean, there's uh it's always, you know, an interesting time of the year. I think the first week of spring training is always a time to get to know all the new players on the team. Sometimes that's one or two players. This year it was like 15. So um, and I thought there was, you know, some interesting storylines that came out of it too. Uh Fort Myers weather, very strange. Uh we get up every day to get to the ballpark for 8 a.m. It's about 55 degrees. And by the time we leave it too, it's like 95. So uh, <laughs> you know, I, I know people would trade that for uh, the snow and, and the cold at home. But in terms of knowing what to wear, it's a disaster every day. So it's not it's not perfect. I'll say that. All right. So you had a great story on Tristan Cassis that came out late last week and into the weekend. Of course, it was a big talking point. I want to get into that in a second. But before that, what was your reaction to Cal Conley the other day? The eight second violation, I guess what we're calling it as the new pitch clock. Really, it's been a story, not just like locally with the Red Sox, but all over Major League Baseball. And it's been like a big national sports story, not just a baseball story. What have you made of the changes with the implementation of the pitch clock, so to speak? Yeah. So my grandpa, who is going to be 94 in August called me yesterday because he was confused on what happened in that game that he was watching. And I explained the, the pitch clock as the guy's been watching baseball for like 85 years. He thought, it was the, <laughs> he, thought he thought it was the greatest thing in the world. And so uh, my, my thing is if, if he can be receptive to change uh, at his age, I think anybody can because uh, he thinks it's great for the game to speed it up. And then I told him about the shifts and all this stuff. And he's like, Oh my God, this is great. You know, they finally did something to you know make it move along. So, you know, I always say that sports writers and people who cover baseball for a living, we're all going to be 
completely one-sided on the pitch clock thing because it literally cuts our workday by an hour. And that, you know, instead <laughs> of a three and a half hour game, two and a half hour game. So you're going to see a lot of positive coverage of it that way. But I think objectively, I think it's good for the game. Um, it does take a little getting used to, We, you know, the clock behind them. Uh, I've seen, I think Carabas tweeted, it's like the impending doom clock, you know, with the uh, flashing down to zero. But um, it's what the game is now. I think in spring training, that's, you know, as Alex Gore keeps saying, that's when they're going to work out the kinks, right? They have 30, 35 games to get used to it, to do it, all that type of stuff. Um, and I think that uh, that's what they're going to do. So obviously, um, you know, it's funny that in that first game where they used it, maybe, you know, the biggest, uh, the the most impactful way it could come into play happened, right? A 3-2, two, two out, bases loaded, uh, tie game in the ninth inning and an automatic strike call. Um, you know, I'm, I'm guessing that, you know, p- players are going to be more aware in the regular season and that type of thing's not going to happen. But um, it goes to show the umpires are taking it seriously. The league's taking it seriously. These are the rules and you know everybody has to play by them. So I'm all for it. I think, you know, most of the players on the Red Sox now have said uh, they like it. There are a few guys who've been pretty vocal from last year's team about not liking it, um, which is kind of interesting. You know, Kevin Pilecki tweeted over the weekend. He didn't like it. Matt Strom, same thing. Rich Hill last year. Um, you know, I think said some things about, you know, and threw that cushion out on third base. So a few of those guys weren't happy about it, but this, this Red Sox group right now, you know, if they have issues with it, they haven't said it publicly. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, I always think like, yeah, it's a cool headline to have, okay, this pitcher complains and, uh, you know, hates these rules, but what does it matter? They have to play under them. Right. So, um, you know, Kenley Jansen can adjust and after taking you know, 35 seconds after pitches for his whole career, I think anybody can. Yeah, well, my whole thing is thank God Sal Moore is not on the Red Sox anymore because they would have a major problem. There would be a lot of violations when it comes to him. And it does feel like the hitters are having the tougher adjustment right now. And we heard Max Scherzer saying the other day that it feels like he now can can completely control the tempo. The other thing I thought was interesting when I'm watching the game on Nesson the other day is my old buddy Lou Merloni said that what are they going to do with bear, uh, with beer seals? Because after the seventh inning, it's usually cut off. I mean, these games are flying by. They may have to right. extend that to the eighth inning or so. Something for the people in the stadium yeah, are going to be that's upset. That's a good question. I'm not sure. It's a uh, that's uh, probably an error mark question. So uh, I don't have error mark sources, but if I did, I'd check in. <laughs> All right. So I want to get to your Tristan Cassis story that came out and the headline: Red Sox Tristan Cassis ruffled feathers with pregame routine, learned valuable lesson in the process. So you mentioned in the article the sunbathing story where it's the first game and a pitcher walks out and he says, "Are you fucking kidding me?" So basically, it just goes through some of the wild stuff that Cassis does before the game, the sunbathing. And then the other thing he does is these pregame naps, which he was doing in the minor league level in the clubhouse. He did that with the Red Sox. So what was like the biggest issue that the players had with what Cassis was doing last year? I think it just comes down to that age old kind of hierarchy that you see in the game Um, that is in a lot of ways antiquated, but it's there. You know, it's a thing that you talk to anybody who comes up and as a rookie, there's a certain expectation for behavior. There's a certain expectation for um, kind of being, you know, being there, but not being seen or not being heard. Right. And uh, I think there were some guys in the Red Sox that took objection to how seen and how heard you know, Tristan Casas was. And this is not a new thing in baseball by any means. Obviously, not every story comes to light. You know, I can think back to you know just my time on the beat here in five years in 2019 when Michael Chavis came up. He was doing every interview. Yeah, I remember a post-game scrum after they had a bad offensive game, and he was asked, like, what could the offense do? And he, he spoke, you're supposed to say as a rookie, I'm just worried about my at-bats. And he said, 
you know, a couple of our guys were chasing pitches tonight and this and this and this. And I was thinking <laughs> to myself, like, that is going to rub people the wrong way. Like, we, we like the candor as media members, but in the clubhouse, I don't think it's going to go particularly well. Um, with Costas, it was, you know, he's a guy that knows the value of fitting in because you, it's, you're, you're kind of trying to be part of the team, trying to be uh, the guy that everybody, you know, respects and, um, you know, the rookie that's not making noise. But at the same time, he had all of those different things that he did in the minor leagues. And when he got to the majors, you know, nobody told him that that was unacceptable. So on day one, he sunbathed in the outfield and he took a nap in the clubhouse or whatever. And um, that's just part of his crazy routine. He likes to get sun. It feels like it energizes him. He likes to take a 30 minute nap from 90 minutes before first pitch to an hour before first pitch um, in AAA in the Woosocks clubhouse. He did that laying down on the floor in the middle of the room with towels over his face. Um, and you think, you know, there's some veteran players in the Red Sox who were thinking, like, why do I have to step over this kid who has five minutes in the big leagues? That's, you know, what they were thinking. And um, they were annoyed by it, thinking that he was kind of making a show. And uh, so they talked to him. And to his credit, he changed things up. You know, he goes and sunbathes on the Coca-Cola deck, I think Alex Boris said. And there's a nap room he can utilize and all that stuff. So it's, you know, I, I think that the story took off as a... Um, Red Sox players from last year being old men yelling at cloud type of thing. I think the point of the story was that Tristan Casas went through what every other rookie from for decades and you know centuries have gone through, and he adjusted to it. And now the difference was that he was willing to kind of say the quiet part out loud. I think, and not, he wasn't calling out teammates by name. He wasn't telling every detail of what happened behind the scenes. Some I've heard some rumors of what it was. I didn't have a lot of it in the story because I hadn't confirmed them, you know, exactly, you know, who the people were or what the clashes were exactly. But he said there were clashes. And, you know, he said basically like, you know, there were times where I felt disrespected. I had to stand up for myself. But at the end of the day, knowing that I wanted to fit in, um, I had to change up my routine. And so with him, He's a very unique guy. We've seen the fingernails painted. We've seen some of the tweets he's put out that are, uh, you know, pretty uh, different. Uh, he's is a guy that <laughs> is kind of unlike a lot of people we've seen come through the Red Sox clubhouse. Um, and so it's kind of walking that line as a 22 year old, 23 year old. Okay, you know, can I? I'm going to try to be myself, but I don't want to piss off all my teammates in the same, you know, in the same uh, sense. And so, uh, but he said to me in a conversation the other day after the story ran. None of this matters. I just have to produce, you know, I just have to produce. And, um, you know, I think that there was a um, there's a sense with Red Sox veterans like that, too. You know, like if he if he gets two hits or hits a home run a given night, he can do whatever he wants pregame. Um, but, you know, it's just kind of part of it. So I was surprised, honestly, about how much it blew up, about how much, you know, people used it to, you know, paint a club, a, a picture, I guess, that the Red Sox clubhouse was horrible last year. This is something that happens in every clubhouse. It'll happen this year. It'll happen next year um, in terms of like, you know, rookies feeling or veterans feeling like rookies need to, you know, earn their keep or earn their place. And uh, it's just, again, it, it came to light because he was willing to talk about it. Uh, you hear stories about behind the scenes stuff like this all the time. Um, and so, but I thought, you know, again, an interesting angle on kind of what a rookie goes through because the adjustment's not just on the field. It's definitely off the field too. Yeah, well, and too, like Alex Cora said about it, I didn't like the headline because I didn't think that's what the article that of the headline said, right? So it made sense from my perspective where if you read the article, you understand like, oh, this is a guy that is adjusting to big league life. And Alex Cora is basically saying like, hey, like what people are talking about now, that's not like what actually happened. If you actually read the story, you'll understand like he was just trying to adjust to the big leagues. I do find it compelling that Alex Cora like 
of course, like he can go in the nap room, but they found him a spot to sunbathe at the Coca-Cola deck, which which is like out of all things that a manager needs to find. Hey, uh, you know what, Trisha, I think we could send you up in the Coca-Cola deck. But what did you make of uh, Cora's reaction to the piece? Well, you know, Cora dropped one of his funniest lines in a while. He said it's actually good for him up on the Coca-Cola deck because he's, you know, technically closer to the sun there. So, (laughs) you know, that makes some sense in terms of the sunbathing. Um, I thought his reaction was was interesting because, you know, obviously he said, you know, the the story and, and what was in it. Uh, he uh, he didn't like the headline. And then, you know, he said, I know how it works. Chris writes the story and someone else at Mass Live writes the headline, yada, yada, yada. And I just was like, I got a cop to this. Or, no, Alex, I wrote the headline, too. So um, <laughs> which I like, I think it's it, it did. It ruffled feathers. Right. That's an old it's a uh, kind of a. Um, cliche phrase but it's what happened i mean veterans were angry about it and then he adjusted it wasn't um the tristan casas ruined the red sox clubhouse last year and um this is why they're a last place team um he did make a good point i think about you know when when uh you're a last place team these types of things tend to come out and you think there's clubhouse angst he said in 2018 there was a lot of stuff that happened too that uh that you know happened in the clubhouse but it never came out because they won 108 games in the regular season so um you know I thought it was interesting that, you know, it, it goes to show, and this is not a, you know, Alex Gore reads mass live type of thing, but it's a, like, you know, they, uh, everybody's kind of aware of what's going on. What's in the media. You know, he reads things, Bloom reads things, the players read things, they read tweets. You know, I had just for, as another example, and I won't name names on this one. Like I had a player block me on Twitter recently and I went up to him and asked him, um, this week, Hey, why did you block me? Is there something I did? And I thought it was going to be some BS answer. And he said, I didn't like your coverage of my teammate. I thought you were a little too harsh on this guy specifically on this day. And, you know, like it's not, it's not a, uh, it's always a reminder to me because I always figure these guys have no idea what's going on, what's said about them, what's written about them. And, you know, they actually pay attention. So, you know, for Alex to sit down with Tristan and go over the article and all that type of stuff, um, I thought was somewhat interesting. And, you know, his, his point about, kind of the headline and and um stuff i thought it was was interesting because i would i'll defend my headline i think it's fair i do think the reaction was your classic a lot of people read the headline or read the tweet and did not read the story and at that point that's out of my control right so um i think that uh you know the reaction surprised me and the reaction surprised me a little bit because it was like nobody out there saying well, good for the veterans for putting this rookie in their place. The reaction was 99%, you know, Casas, do whatever you want and, you know, screw the veterans, that type of stuff, which I thought was unique um, and a little bit surprising. But it, again, I think it's, uh, you know, it's something that happens all the time. And so it's just, you know, I know I've said it a couple of times now, but he was willing to go on the record about it. And, you know, that's where the story comes from. It's not uh, like I was going, stir- trying to stir trouble and, and find a negative angle. It's just something I had heard behind the scenes. And if he said, Oh, I don't want to talk about that, then that would have been that. Um, but he did. And, um, you know, credit to him for that. Yeah. It's a great point too on the reaction too, because I did find that surprising because, all right, this is a rookie that just gets into major league baseball. He's just about the team. He's napping in the middle of the clubhouse. Mm-hmm. Like this is the player's clubhouse. And all of a sudden there's just some kid that's napping in the clubhouse. Like it's, it's an odd thing. So I could totally right. understand. That's why I did feel bad. Like it, they, 
people thought like, oh, these these veterans are such bad guys. But it's like, well, that's not like normal behavior that you see in Major League Baseball. A dude just like <laughs> right. laying down, taking a nap. So I can understand it. I, I was like, I kind of like was defending the veterans a little bit. Like, I mean, it's kind of an odd situation. Like, it, it's not like a normal thing. So I, it seems like everybody's adjusted to that. And then on the field, I just feel like he could be such a game changer for this team this year because... I mean, I liked them hitting leadoff the other day. I know Cora said he just did that so the media could react to it. But I felt like, oh, this is kind of like Schwarber, right? It's a high walk guy and a guy with a lot of power, a guy that's going to see a ton of pitches, as we know. So I like the idea of it. But if you look at him, most of the projections have him below 20 home runs based on like the plate appearances. If he has a better year than that and he can get close to like 25 home runs or something along those lines, I think it totally changes sort of the outlook of this team because then that's another guaranteed guy that has power in the lineup. So I think he could really be a barometer for this team in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think so too. You know, I think that uh, you kind of look at it and I asked a question on Twitter that is very related to this yesterday. Uh, We talked about it on my pod the other day. Like, who's the second best player in the Red Sox behind Rafael Devers? And they need somebody to step up and take that over. My, I say right now, Garrett Whitlock, which is like, Hmm. you know, no slight to Garrett Whitlock, but like he's a rule five guy from a couple years ago. He's been a reliever. Like um, he's been excellent and I expect him to be excellent out of the rotation, but they need a guy to step up. You know, obviously story, um, you know, should be that guy, but he's out for, for half the year, whatever sale could and should be that guy, but you can't say that until he's out on the mound. Tristan Costas is one of those guys that could step up and do it. Um, you know, I think the numbers last year you look at, I think he hit 197 and, and stuff, but like, you know, he took a Garrett Cole fastball the other way over the monster and like he controlled the zone and walked a lot and all that type of stuff. And I thought, you know, he's very impressive with the way he looked at the plate. I think they were, you know, surprised in a good way with his defense at first base, too. So, um, you know, it doesn't seem like there's uh, as much hype as there should be just because there's so many new faces and so much that has to go right for the Red Sox. But you're right. He's a guy that, you know, could really elevate this team. You know, there's a lot of guys like that that, you know, need to perform Yoshida, Verdugo, Kike. Uh, Casas, you know, like Sale. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of these guys that think like, oh, if he has a bad year, then this team might not get anywhere. There's a lot of guys that I feel like the pressure's on in that way. You know, Casas doesn't get you know brought up enough, I think, among those guys uh, because we've been talking about his napping and his fingernails the whole spring, and maybe not what he could bring to the plate. So that's on me, I guess, and the fine folks on the beat. But he's um, a very interesting player. One they you know they like enough to uh, DFA Eric Hosmer, and you know kind of uh, hand him the keys to the position. I think he's going to get a lot of um, a lot of run there. And, and one other thing on the lineup, I think, you know, uh, Sunday, my last day in Fort Myers, Alex Cora somewhat interestingly said, if I brought up Yoshida in the leadoff spot, uh, you know, then that's on me. I don't know. You know, we didn't really ever think that way, yada, yada, yada. Uh, and I went back and looked at the quotes for December 15th. Um, <laughs> And Heimbloom said he certainly has the skill set to do it. Um, we want to <laughs> see out see how the whole lineup comes together. But we've talked about um, you know strike zone judgment and yada yada yada. And Yoshida fits at the top of our order. And it seemed like they were locking him in there. And uh, I don't know if he doesn't want to do it, which is you know something a lot of guys don't want to hit lead off. It just screws up their routine. Um, but it seems like they're moving away from that pretty quickly, even at this early point of spring training. So they're looking for options. I think Casas is obviously a super unorthodox one, but a guy that we could see there on occasion. Well, it's a great point because with the Yoshida situation, I thought he was a lock. I thought he was guaranteed we'd be the leadoff hitter, and I was yeah, kind of panicking. Too. 
I was kind of panicking because uh, Cora had said multiple times he wants to split up Yoshida and Rafi. And I don't want Rafi to hit third. I mean, second is way more important in the lineup. I'd rather make cleanup than third, quite frankly. So I was kind of like, well, what are they going to do here? And then Alex Cora says that the other day. And we knew like the bat to ball skills are incredible, like the walk rate over there in Japan. The strikeout rate was really great. But then you look at some of the power numbers were really good for him in Japan as well. And that was my thing. Like, will this be something that carries over? And now if you look at it, they give him that five-year, $90 million deal. And a lot of people around Major League Baseball thought it was a bad deal. But if he's going to legitimately hit for power, this could actually end up being a really good contract for Heim Bloom and company. So, I mean, is it crazy now hearing what Cora said, where Cora is basically saying, we don't want him to hit leadoff. So that basically tells you, and he hit that rocket off the wall on Sunday, that they think he can legitimately hit for power. Like, are 40 doubles possible for Yoshida this year? I mean, is that what they're imagining playing at Fenway? Yeah, I think they're imagining that he can uh, slug for sure. I think they can. They look at him as a complete hitter. And, you know, I think, you know, I'm not the tallest guy in the world. And I, uh, you know, I think he's probably got me by a couple inches, but not too far off from eye to eye. And he's, you know, slight. And you would, like, not slight, but like, you know, muscular, like, you don't look at that guy and think this is a, a guy like you look at Casas and go, oh, this guy can hit the ball out of the ballpark, right? You look at Yoshida and not the same thing, um, but he can. He's proven that in Japan. You know, I think there's 15 to 20 home run potential, obviously the doubles. Um, you know, I think the interesting thing with him is uh, there's I think, you know, there's so much pressure on him in a couple of ways. Number one on him himself to come and you know, prove that he was worth the money. But I think that this is a guy that Heim Bloom's really hitched his wagon to, right? Like we yeah. have heard all the criticisms for years of Heim Bloom, not, and this is if some of these criticisms were legit, but, you know, not willing to be aggressive on players, not willing to overpay, not willing to set the market. This guy was available for like 20 minutes and Heim said, we'll give you $90 million. And Boris was like, okay, they didn't even talk to Yoshida <laughs> on a Zoom call or meet with them or anything before they got this done. Like they just said, we'll do it. And Boris said, all right, yeah, great, we'll do it. Um, because they they hit the number they were looking for and they got the deal done, which it's a big gamble by the Red Sox to go and do that. But they liked the player. They thought they had identified the skill set that much. And they, you know, sometimes you have to overpay. And maybe they did in this case. Um, so there's a lot of pressure, I think, on this player to work out for Heimblum. That being said, I, I really would caution people. And, you know, I did the same thing with Trevor Story last year where he's these guys are not going to make excuses for themselves. I'll take it. I'll do it. I'll make excuses for them even preemptively. He, uh, the WBC thing where he's potentially going to be away from the Red Sox for three weeks, three and a half weeks in the middle of this transition period, coming back with a week left in camp. I mean, I think he's leaving like tomorrow. Um, he's going to be gone for a long time. Think about all the adjustments that has to happen, you know, between meeting everybody, um, you know, getting, you know, familiar with his, you know, translator and, and the way the communication is going to work and, he said, you know, just things that you wouldn't even expect. Like, I guess, you know, I, I guess I knew this, but they play almost all their games in domes in Japan on turf. And now he's getting used to playing on grass and trying to track balls in the sun. Like, that's something I didn't think of as a transition, but it's legit. Um, you know, the travel over there, I guess it's obviously, um, you know, there's not the six hour flight to the West Coast and the red eyes and that type of stuff. That's going to be an adjustment, too. So, April and May, if he is not, you know, the same type of player that he has been in Japan throughout his career, I think there's going to be a lot going on. I would kind of preach patience on him just because, you know, the transition's already tough. You add the whole WBC and going back and forth and back and forth type of thing to it. And I think that it's an uphill climb for him to produce in those first couple months. Unfortunately, you know, those games count as much as the ones in August and September. He needs to produce. Um, 
So it's just, I think there's going to be kind of a learning curve there. There's a lot of things that people don't realize. And, you know, I always hate people you know, criticizing a guy like that. I, I'm getting out ahead of this because I can see it coming in a couple months. Right. But like, if you had to, uh, you know, undergo that much adjustment in a short period of time, you would not be, you know, probably performing extremely well at your job either under all that. So, you know, the Red Sox are hoping for the best, but I do think that there's a chance that it takes a little while for him to get um, get going. We saw it last year with Trevor Story, you know, like and obviously he wasn't coming over from a different country, but, you know, new league and new city signed, you know, a week before opening day, had a kid, had to go home, get sick, all these things that happened the first week. And that's why he was horrible in April and May. You know, we saw once he got his legs under him in May, um, you know, he's very good and one of the Red Sox best players. And there's a stat that, you know, they they won like 65% of their games or something when he was on the field. So, um, you know, again, preemptively preaching patience on Yoshida. He could be great and no learning curve at all and blow us all away. If he doesn't, uh, that's not, you know, you're not going to tell the entire story of uh, the five-year, $90 million contract in the first two or three months here. Yeah, and the... Interesting component to me is the WBC, right? Because I don't believe they're using the rules, right? In terms nope. of the pitch clock and whatnot. So that's obviously going to be an adjustment for all these guys that are going there. And they got like a little taste of it over the weekend, but then they're going to have to readjust when they come back after not right. playing with the pitch clock, which makes me think, why didn't they just put the pitch clock in the WBC? It would have made more sense for everybody. And to your point about the criticism that Yoshida may receive... I think it'll be high in bloom, right? That's what we saw last year with Story. It, mm -hmm. it wasn't so much. A lot of it was directed at high in bloom. So, yeah, I, I think you're right on that to preach patience on him early on in the season, which we know Red Sox fans are famous for doing. They, right. they they've always patient. Yeah, yeah. They've, they've always been very patient people. Exactly. So how about Verdugo? It feels like he's at a crossroads. And I know he mentioned like some contract stuff, but if you look at it, he's He's making, what, 6.3 in arbitration this year. Next year will be his 28-year-old season, which will be his final year of arbitration. If the Red Sox thought he was a sure thing, they would have already signed him to an extension or at least approached him about an extension. The defense slipped last year, and all his numbers slipped last year. I know he's banged up at the beginning of the year, but Alex Cora came out and called him out after the season directly. He did that actually multiple times where he said, we need more from Alex Verdugo. Now, it's early on in spring training. I believe he's like four for his last five. He looks like he's in, and look, not that I'm buying into like he's four or five, but mm -hmm. he does like one of the things that Cora mentioned is he needed to get into better shape. And he's clearly in better shape if you just look at him. So do you think that this year he's closer to the guy that two years ago is closer to hitting 300, 355-ish on base percentage, or is he the guy that's 280 and 330? I think he's uh, the interesting thing with him is that uh, you keep hearing over and over and over again from t people around him. He doesn't know how good he is to the point where like people have thrown out. He has the talent to be a Hall of Famer if he could figure it out like that type of, you know, Whoa. you hear that from ex Dodgers teammates, ex Dodgers teammates in the Red Sox clubhouse and, you know, said that in passing this spring talking about Verdugo like they think that this guy, you know, has the potential to be not just a five-tool guy, but a superstar in the league. And in 2020, I think we saw a little taste of that. I think he was, and again, a very low bar on a team that had Matt Hall and uh, all those types of guys. But on 2020, in 2020, he was the Red Sox best player. Um, and, you know, I think that it was pretty clear and people were really excited about him heading into 21. He was a good member of the supporting cast there. And last year, you know, although some of the numbers were good, a lot of the advanced numbers showed that he declined in almost every, in every aspect of his game. So, um, 
you know, right at the beginning of camp, I talked to him and he said that Alex Gore's comments pissed him off. He said that he's sick of people talking shit about him. He said all that type of stuff. <laughs> really fired up as Alex Verdugo often gets. And he's a great interview because he has no filter. And we appreciate that. Um, and he, you know, went home and he basically said that he tried to lose weight. And the Red Sox have had two guys do the exact same thing. In a launch angle era where guys are hitting the ball out of the ballpark, even smaller guys, both Ben and and Verdugo, bulked up to try to do that. And it didn't work because it slowed down every other aspect of their game. It made their defense worse, made their base running worse, um, you know, lowered their average a little bit. And Cora hated it with Ben and and he hated it with Verdugo. And he went on the record and said the same thing about both guys and, you know, had both guys try to come back leaner, Ben and in 20, and, and then Verdugo here. Um, they both did, and, and Verdugo, um, you know, obviously the story's yet to be told on what he's like this year, but, you know, the Red Sox are expecting a lot out of him, and and look, even if, you know, some of the defensive numbers took a turn for the worse last year, they're still, um, you know, they're, they're still entrusting him with a pretty important position in right field at Fenway Park. You know, is he going to be Jackie Bradley or Mookie Betts or whatever it is? No, um, but they think he can, especially if he's a little quicker on his feet, Play that position and play it in a respectable way. Um, I think they like Duvall in center. Obviously, Yoshida in left. They're not sure exactly what they're going to do there. Um, so it's a big year for Verdugo for sure. Um, you know, the the contract stuff was just in the words of one source, Doogie being Doogie in terms of him playing around and saying, "Oh, you guys are <laughs> going to have to pay me. You're going to have to give me a big deal." But that's just the kind of guy he is, right? Like he's so <laughs> he's confident in his abilities, even though you know some teammates say he doesn't know how good he is. Um, you know, he's got the right mindset. You know, we hear tight spring training, you know, you hear all these types of guys, this is my year, you know, I'm in the best shape of my life, all that stuff. And then they're hitting 210 in May, right? But, um, you know, he's he's a, definitely a breakout candidate and one of those guys, like I said, when I listed all those guys earlier, like uh, he's a guy that could elevate this team from middle of the pack to a contender, I think. There's a lot of guys that, uh, again, they all have to do well. They all have to kind of go right, whether it be Yoshida, Casas, Verdugo, um, Sale, all these guys that I mentioned. But, um, he's in the right mindset right now. And I think the Red Sox are pleased with how he looks so far. Obviously he's going to the WBC too. Um, so that'll be something to watch. Um, you know, there's a lot of re- really interesting Red Sox storylines in the WBC, him, Yoshida, uh, some of these other guys they have, obviously Devers is playing, um, but they expect a lot from him. And, um, it is, you know, in terms of a make or break year, I remember thinking about Dahlbeck in this way last year, and, and obviously he fell more on the break side. Uh, now he doesn't really have a, have a role on the team. With Verdugo, it's, you know, year four, and um, we've seen a really good version of him. We've seen kind of a um, a little bit worse version last year, and, and I think that he's he is hell-bent on proving the doubters wrong. So take that for what it's worth, but um, a breakout candidate for sure. Yeah, well, if he's worried about thinking about how good he is, he should just talk to his brother. I mean, he basically retweets <laughs> any positive thing that's right. said about Alex Verdugo. And then the other component to that is, just that, I mean, it feels like he took what Cora said seriously, which, I mean, yeah. that's a good sign for the player that he actually did that. And I remember the Benintendi thing, too, where I re- think he did, like, the Rocks workout in the offseason, like <laughs> Dwayne the Rock Johnson. He just got, he wasn't athletic anymore, and that's, like, what made him such a good player when he was athletic. And it does seem like, to his credit, he's back to the player that he was in 2018 when he made that great catch, of course, against the Astros. So Garrett Whitlock... Alex Cora said on Monday that he may not be ready for opening day, but it may not be long after that. So they're going to play it safe for them, obviously, coming off that hip surgery. But you look at it probably means what Sale, Kluber, Pavetta, Bayo, Paxton the first time through. Of course, they have Hoke, too, but it feels like he's sort of going to be in that role where it's sort of like a long reliever. Cora said that he wants to get as many innings out of him as possible. But 
When Whitlock comes back, and I'm sure it's not going to be too long based on what Cora said, I mean, what's the rotate? Like, who's the odd man out? I mean, would they consider a six-man rotation? I'm just trying to, like, kind of get a gauge on what they would do here because it feels like, I mean, I really, they have seven guys for five spots, but obviously yeah. it feels like we know what Houck's going to be. What are they going to do with that sixth spot? I wouldn't be, you know, like, I would definitely think of Houck in that way, and I've been writing it, but, you know, he's starting this week, and they... uh have basically told him to keep preparing to be a starter. And the most innings obviously means as a starter, right? So I wouldn't be shocked if they surprised us and did that. But if you start looking at what they're saying about every guy, um, it kind of becomes a little more clear. Bayo is going to be a starter. Um, They're not going to put him in the bullpen. I I just kind of get the sense that they don't want to start him in Worcester. Uh, I think that they think he's good enough to be major league ready now. So that's one spot. Sale, absolutely not going to the bullpen. Kluber, absolutely not going to the bullpen. Whitlock, when healthy, if healthy, uh, they said he is going to be a starter. No more screwing around with the hybrid role or the bullpen. So that's four. And James Paxton, uh, who starts uh, later this week for the first time, I think that they, Heimblum on my podcast, said, uh, you know, he's a guy that's never come out of relief in his career. And so, therefore, we don't want to add another wrinkle to his rehab process. We want him to come back and be ready to start. And so that makes you think that James Paxton is locked into a relief spot. The one guy that, they have not said that about Nick Pavetta. And I think that mm. that's a really interesting wrinkle that, uh, you know, people just assume, yeah, the guy who led you in starts last year and the guy who led you in innings last year, probably locked into your rotation. He probably earned it with, again, he's not, he was not amazing last year, but he took the ball every five days. And, and that's definitely something to, um, you know, that's something that's important. Um, but I would not be shocked if they started him in the bullpen. It's just a gut feel. Haven't talked to anybody about it, but if you look at what they've said about everybody else around him, that would make some sense. Um, you know, they need kind of a long guy, obviously Pavetta and how are two guys that can do it. Um, but you know, as fun as it is to talk about these, you know, the seven for five thing, these things always have a way of, you know, figuring themselves out and, and usually they're in, it's injury related. So, uh, if all seven of these guys are ready to go by opening day, it'll be something close to a miracle considering their health histories. I think the Red Sox realize that. And that's why they have the seven. And they're going to look at it as a great problem to have. Does that mean they, you know, trade one of these guys at some point? Maybe. You know, Pavetta, I think it would be the most likely trade candidate there, too, um, for various reasons. You know, you're not going to trade Kluber after just signing him. Sale, same thing with, with value. Um, you know, Paxton probably doesn't have any value and, and probably Whitlock and Houck and Bay are untouchable. So again, you look at Pavetta as the odd man out if you're looking at trades. Um, so I think it's a very interesting storyline in the next couple of weeks. If somebody like Whitlock is, you know, well, he'll be at 90% on opening day. They're not going to do it because they feel like they have depth even behind those guys. Cutter Crawford who pitched well um, in his spring debut. Josh Winkowski is a guy who's, you know, going to be major league ready for a spot start. Brian Mata, Brandon Walter. Uh, Chris Murphy, those guys are are not far along, uh, not far from the majors. So they feel like they have a lot of depth. They're not going to rush these guys to, you know, make the opening day roster. I think, oh, you hear not going to be ready for opening day. Well, if he makes his debut on April 5th, it's really not that big of a deal. It's just he's not, you know, um, going to be there on March 30th. And I think with Whitlock, my guess is that he won't be, you know, Bayo obviously dealt with a forearm thing too. It wouldn't be a shock if he missed a start or two just because they're trying to be careful with their best young arms because you know, rushing him back for one start when you have them under control for six, seven more years doesn't make a lot of sense. So um, they're going to be careful. I feel like they, they think they're insulated enough to do it. Um, but yeah, that, that's that been my bold prediction throughout camp. Nick Pavetta to the bullpen eventually, and we'll see how it goes. You know, I like it too, because you look at Pavetta last year, and I give him credit for eating up innings the way he did, but he was 40 40- 
fourth out of 45 qualifiers in hard hit rate, and the same thing with walk rate, 44th out of 45. So he does have trouble with command. And when they put him in that bullpen role two years ago when they made the playoff run, they did it actually at the end of the season too. Remember, he had that walk-off mm-hmm. strikeout of Juan Soto on that nasty curveball. Right. So I think he sort of relished that moment. Now, the only problem is, can you convince him like, hey, Nick, this isn't actually a demotion. Like, we think you can be an elite reliever. I guess that would be the difficult conversation. The other thing is, I mean, I'm interested in Cutter Crawford, right? Because, I mean, he had he had a stretch for about, what, seven weeks. He was the best pitcher on the Red Sox. What his role is going to be, because it seems like looking at where the bullpen's at, he's kind of like the odd man out, too. But he's definitely somebody that could fit into a long relief role, at least in the foreseeable future. So I don't know what this season holds for him. Do you think, I mean, obviously it doesn't look like he's going to start the season with the team, but I got to imagine he's going to factor in at some point based on injuries and whatnot. Yeah. The, the Red Sox, a couple things on that, you know, obviously uh, when you go out and you add, you know, four veteran relievers and you already have Schreiber locked in, that's basically, you know, five bullpen spots locked up for Jansen and Martin Schreiber, Blyer and Jolie Rodriguez. Um, they have, promised by keeping him on the roster a spot to Ryan Brazier, which is one that doesn't really make sense to anybody, but they like some of the uh, adjustments he made at the end of the year. And so they're going to see that one through. Um, and so that does mean a guy like, you know, Cutter Crawford or a guy like Zach Kelly or Wyatt Mills or Caleb Ord or some of these guys are, you know, the odd men out off the team to start. Um, you know, the Red Sox are really trying not to use their top young pitchers as relievers anymore because they did it so many times. That's why there is that gap between, you know, developing Buckholz and Lester and then, you know, failing with everybody else. You know, Matt Barnes was a first round mm-hmm. pick and one of their great uh, pitching prospects He's obviously, you know, was a uh, effective at times reliever for the team for, you know, nine years, but he wasn't a starter. Um, and so they did that so many times that they're trying to keep these guys in starter roles. You know, we've seen out of necessity the last couple of years, Whitlock and help be more relievers. Um, but they're, you know, they want to keep these guys in, in starter roles so they can, you know, develop that talent. And I think they're very excited about this wave, whether it be, you know, obviously Bayo, but Whitlock and 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 Houck. Um, and then that next group of Crawford and Brian Mata, people are very, very high on him. Brandon Walter, people are high on him. So I think they want to keep these guys as starters as long as they possibly can, just because you know, there's so much more value in having those guys. Uh, and they've seen time and time again, you know, as an organization, they push so many guys to relief roles, whether you know, I think Barnes is the best example, but you know, Darwinson Hernandez is another, right? Like he was the top, yeah. the top starting prospect. And all of a sudden he was a reliever and time and time again, there's one point, I forget exactly when Bacora said in the last couple of years, we got to stop doing this. We, as an organization, we got to stop putting these guys in, in relief roles because you know, then you see what happens. Like Darwinson Hernandez comes out in 2019 and has a great uh, year as a reliever. And you start thinking, oh, he could be a great you know, lefty reliever for years to come, right? And so we're not going to screw around with moving him back to starting. And then it just, that's how it goes. So I think they're going to try, you know, their best. And if that means these guys stay at AAA a little longer, it's not satisfactory for the player. But I think in terms of player development, you know, that's what they're going to try to do. Yeah, and I was really impressed the other day with Walter. I mean, that he's got some nasty stuff. I mean, the slider that he was throwing the other day was really effective. All right, Chris, so maybe the most important question before we let you go. Chris Sale, like, are we going to be excited again about Sale Day this season? Like, I'm trying to, like, calm myself down right now. I've been watching everything he's doing. I know the velocity and all that was up last year. It seems like everybody's raving about Chris Sale. He looks good. He looks healthy. It's the first time he hasn't had to rehab in, like, forever where are you on i mean like we know the injuries we we know like these things I, he falls off a bike like these crazy things he hurts his rib when he's just throwing a baseball not like he got hit in the rib but a mm-hmm. uh, man i'm really starting to buy into it where are you 
I mean, there's, and this is such a, I've always, I've said this all off season and it's such a homer take, but like none of these injuries that he had are things that are supposed to carry on, you know, for, uh, they're, they're healed, right? Like he snapped a rib, the bone healed. He got a pinky, uh, basically taken off in his words by an Aaron Hicks line drive <laughs> that's healed. And it doesn't affect his changeup. He was saying that the other day and then the broken wrist, uh, healed. So it's not like a thoracic outlet guy is going to come back and be, you know, screwed up for nerves and mechanics forever. Like he uh, had three broken bones and they're healed. The elbow is healed from Tommy John. Uh, with that, the shoulder strengthened. I mean, he is 100% in full go. And you can always, with Chris Sale, you can always say that until the next injury, right? And Heimblum talked about <laughs> the voodoo doll last year. Um, you know, obviously very injury prone, but those three things were kind of freak things. And, um, you know, maybe they have to be a little bit more, um, you know, careful about biking or, you know, those types of things. But, uh, you know, there's no reason to to think that he can't be effective when he goes out there and, and talk about mindset with him. I talked to him the other day in Fort Myers and basically said to him, you know, what's your goal? Like, what does a successful season mean to you? And he and I said, is it just staying on the field? Is it an innings number? And he said, no, like it hasn't changed at all. I want to be the ace. I want to win games. I want to be dominant because that's all I know. And if he goes out and throws 175 innings and he's, you know, a 450 ERA guy and they lose most of, most of his starts, um, in other words, a Pavetta, like they're not going to be, he, he, he's, he's not going to be happy with that. You know, he's not going to be happy with, um, you know, the, uh, He's not going to be happy with that. He wants to be the ace, and he wants to be a guy that goes out and and dominates. And I think he thinks he can still do it, and the Red Sox think he can. Um, you know, Alex Cora has been consistent throughout all of spring. We're not going to put a lot of pressure on this guy to be the ace, to be the guy, to be you know who he used to be. We just need him to go out and you know do what he can and do his part. Um, but I think the ceiling's still there. Um, and so uh, he before the injuries was one of the best in baseball. You know, is he going to get Cy Young votes this year? somewhat hard to imagine with everything he's been through but you know again none of these things are, are lingering and so why not uh, until he until the next injury is healthy and i and i think you know you could expect that he's gonna be pretty effective all right that is chris cotillo from masslive.com chris thanks so much for the time i really appreciate it and have a great season we'll talk during the year man sounds good thanks brian Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from Chris Cotillo, man. That's a great take on Nick Pavetta. Nick Pavetta could be in the bullpen. And like I was saying to Chris, I think he could thrive there. It's going to be a very interesting Red Sox season because you can sit here, and I've done it multiple times, convince myself, hey, Duvall's going to hit 30 home runs. Cassis could hit 25 home runs. And here we go. Chris Sale's going to be the guy that we saw two years ago, or I should say like four years ago, 2018. Chris Sale's going to be that guy again. It just, there's a lot of what ifs for this team. But I will say this, I'm very interested to see what this team looks like on the field. I I don't like the whole WBC thing. I'm going to enjoy watching it, but I don't like, Chris brought it up with Yoshida, I don't like the whole part of him missing so much time with the Red Sox. A bunch of the other guys are going to do it too. I guess a lot of teams are going to have this problem, but I really don't like how this is all happening to the Red Sox right now with so many different new players. All right, let's get to a couple of your voicemails. That number is 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. All right, who's up first? Hey, Brian. Brennan, living in New York, born and bred in Boston. I'm walking my dog on the streets of Manhattan right now. His name is Fenway. And uh, just came back from Madison Square Garden, the most famous arena on earth. What a piss-poor game from the Celtics. Nine for 42 from three. Tatum had 14 points. He fouled out, technical fouled out. 
You big baby? I thought we were over these tantrums that Tatum continues to have. I am sick and tired of it. We can't win when Jalen's not on the floor. He had a personal day. He's allowed that. But the rest of these guys, they're not winners. They're not champions. This team is not going to win. We'll probably lose Jalen in a year. We'll blow that. And uh, the Lakers will be back on top before you know it. But to lose to the Knicks? Come on. When LeBron, a real champion, he comes to New York, <laughs> oh, he always puts on a show. You know, we don't know how to do that. It's really sad. And I'm embarrassed for this team. I'm embarrassed for myself. I'm embarrassed I took my daughters to their first NBA game. Oh, I hyped it up, got them some Celtics gear. Oh, yeah, we are the we got the best record in basketball. And they were like, Daddy, what happened? Who, who are these frauds? I didn't know what to say. <laughs> Looking forward to the baseball season. Probably going to be more of the same. <laughs> All right, so a couple of things there, man. Don't give up on the team yet. I mean, come on. It's one game. Now, I do. that's a late walk for Fenway, your dog, man. I mean, Fenway staying up late night after that game. I feel bad for your daughters if that was, you know, their first game and they see the Celtics lose. But I would also say this. Like, the Knicks are not a bad team. They're actually a pretty good team. Like, Jalen Brunson has been really good for them. By the way, that guy... He is very crafty, herky-jerky style, but man, like there are a lot of questionable calls with him. Like the whole smart thing, the review where he kicked Marcus Smart, but a lot of times, like you have to be super careful when you play against this guy because anytime you're near him, he's trying to draw contact. So that's a difficult matchup, but I don't think losing to the Knicks is like the embarrassment that it previously was. And I mentioned this off the top here, some of the like playing at Madison Square Garden, Curry puts on a show, LeBron puts on a show. I just don't think it means the same thing to the Celtics. Like the Knicks are not like, first of all, they're not a rivalry of the Celtics or a rival of the Celtics. And secondarily, they play there all the time. So it's not the same as like LeBron or Steph Curry going to New York City. Now, in terms of now, you really went down the deep end with the Jalen thing. I don't believe Jalen's leaving the Celtics organization. I don't. And I don't think that this game is any sort of indicator of what's going to happen in the future. I just look at it. They had a bad night. Their best player is not playing particularly well at the moment, especially from a shooting perspective. I have faith that he's going to turn it around because he showed us all season long. He's capable of getting downhill, getting to the basket, getting to the free throw line and all that stuff. Now, in terms of the technical, you mentioned that I mentioned off the top. I didn't have an issue with it. Like, It'd be one thing if it's a two-point game. The game's over. Tatum's done for the night. He's incredibly frustrated. I didn't have an issue with it. And even after the game, he said he told the officiating crew it's the best officiating game he's ever seen. That was an embarrassment. That officiating crew needed to be put out there on blast. Now, I know sometimes we get aggravated with Tatum in terms of the complaining to the officials. I'm with you most of the time. But in this particular case, I didn't have an issue because what he was complaining about, he was 100% right. He was fouled on that three. Like, you have got to make that call in that particular situation. I don't know how you missed that. So, all in all, I wasn't upset with Tatum in terms of him barking at the officials. All right, who's up next? Hey, Brian. It's Dave down in North Carolina. Love the show. I uh, really appreciated your podcast with Sam Pollard on Bill Russell. Uh, it was like 1967. I was I was seven, and my dad took me into the garden to uh, see the Celtics. So, details are kind of blurry, you know, other than, hey, it was a great time with dad. But I distinctly remember him telling me on the ride home that I just saw the greatest winner in team sports history. And that I always remember. And I believe that's true to today. But I'm really interested in your thoughts on this one. I mean, I hear it argued, unfortunately, locally in some of the Boston shows that those 60 championships and Bill's dominance are diminished because of the times. Smaller, slower, quote, wider league without the free agency. 
okay, points stipulated. However, you never hear them talk about the talent base wasn't as diluted. These rivalries were intense and fierce because regular season and playoffs uh, meant something. Paychecks were so small, these guys had to go at it every night uh, to try to get that extra bit of money uh, at the end of the year or maybe that endorsement they needed to uh, supplement the income. And then, you know, taking a look at those mid-60s all-star rosters, you see such slackers as Wilt, Willis Reed, Nate Thurman, Elgin Baylor, Oscar Robertson, Jerry West, John Havlicek, Hal Greer, Rick Barry, Chet Walker, Walt Bellamy, and, oh, yeah, there's this guy called Russell. So tell me those guys weren't great athletes, and they wouldn't be great in today's era with access to the same technology and training regimens. So uh, interested in your analysis as you delve into the past versus today, Brian. Appreciate your thoughts, and uh, keep up the great work. All right, great stuff, and I appreciate the kind words. And I'm pretty much with everything you said. So, like, you do it in football, right? Joe Montana's stats are not going to look the same as a guy like Philip Rivers, and we know that Joe Montana was the better player. It goes with your era, right? Your era. Bill Russell was the most dominating player in his era, and it's not like he was playing against a bunch of scrubs. I mean, Wilt Chamberlain scored 100 points in a game. So I get it. It was different, but why is Russell the guy that won 11 to 13 then? You had a team with the Lakers, and you alluded to it, that had Elgin Baylor, that had Wilt Chamberlain, that had Jerry West. At the end of Bill Russell's run, when he was the coach, and we talked to Sam Pollard about this, the Knicks had beaten them five out of six times during the regular season, right, where they had a loaded roster in New York that year with the Walt Frazier's of the world. And what happens? Bill Russell comes up with a game plan to beat that particular team. So when you look at that, you had Will Chamberlain, the greatest scorer in NBA history until what? Like Michael Jordan came around, right? I know Carl Malone is, what, third on the list. LeBron has now taken over. But you had that dominating force that Russell was giving up size to, and Russell's team always went won. So I think it's completely unfair where we look at it and say, oh, it was easier for him to win in that generation. Well, he was the most he was the best player in his generation. There's no way around it. Just like it's difficult to compare eras, right? Like you shouldn't compare Bill Russell to LeBron James. It's a totally different time. And I'm with you. Like if you look at if Bill Russell was born in this era, he'd probably play totally different. But elite athletes in any era would be great if they were born in a different era, right? It's not just like, oh, Bill Russell couldn't play in the NBA nowadays. Well, yeah, well, it's he was playing in the 50s and the 60s. He'd play the game differently. He'd be different just from a build standpoint, right? Athletes are bigger, faster, stronger. All that stuff evolves. But I do agree with you. People try to discredit Bill Russell because the amount of people that were in the league, but he won 11 of 13. I, I really don't know how you can argue with the success that Bill Russell had. I mean, come on. It's just it, like... I know like there was this debate a couple of weeks ago where J.J. Redick and Mad Dog Russo were going at it about like comparing Larry Bird to Steph Curry. It's like these guys play in totally different eras. It's ridiculous to compare them. It's just it's stupid. It doesn't make sense to me whatsoever. If you're dominant in any era, you're just a dominant player. I'm not going to belittle Larry Bird because he played in the 1980s and he didn't play in 2023. It doesn't make any sense to me. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. Or you can also email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McCollin and Steve Sturdy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat with you on Thursday. 